typically beginning a sitting. any of the contemplations or variations within a given contemplation that we've covered, whatever you've learned from your own experience is most conducive to calming the mind. More and more trusting that experience. Developing ingenuity, becoming self-reliant. For many people, the point of contact at the nose, at the nostrils, or the upper lip. Helps to bring about a convergence of energy. Fairly quickly. For others, that's not so. They're not attracted to it or there's strong resistance. Someone else may find that tracking that we discussed is what is most helpful. This can be especially so if the mind is a bit sleepy, if energy is a little low, if there's some dullness, laziness. That little extra bit of energy that's needed for mindfulness to move with the breath can both awaken the mind as well as calm it and concentrate it. But for some people, there's too much room in the tracking to get distracted. Too many gaps in the journey. my own case for quite a few years. The particular version of the third contemplation on the whole body that I use was most helpful in bringing the mind to stability and calm was to be sensitive to the whole body while breathing in and breathing out. That was something I was very attracted to, interested in, and it came fairly easily.
I was much less interested in bringing attention at the nostrils or the upper lip. If you stay with this particular practice long enough, as you come to know the ways of the breath, as you come to see the different moods and capacities that you have from time to time, you probably work with all or a fair number of these at different times. So you get to know them all and can orchestrate and use any of these techniques as the occasion demands. You don't get locked into anything. You find which tools are useful for you and when to use them. And as you all now know, the whole sutta is like that. Assuming a reasonably thorough moving through in a progressive way, all 16 steps. The time for individual application and practice comes. Different steps are combined and used in different ways, very much on an individual basis. However you're using some form of the breathing to come to some level of calm, if you find that your attention is steady, the the breath becomes very fine, Not so much thinking and the thoughts that do come, come and go easily. We don't cling to them. Some degree of happiness in the mind. The body perhaps a bit more relaxed because the breath has calmed down the breath being a powerful conditioner of the body. Then you may decide that you want to work on the 13th contemplation, and as we've been discussing for the last month, it seems, all the different things that come quite naturally out of the 13th. The Buddha only mentions impermanence. But it's shorthand for unsatisfactoriness and anatta, not-self, as well. And as has been mentioned, the deeper the penetration into impermanence, the more fading starts to happen, particularly the fading away of attachment. Impermanence and the fading away of attachment 
very strongly related. The more deeply we see the way things are, the less likely we are to behave in ways that are contrary to the way things are. The more likely to be in harmony. To observe the laws of nature. In some degree, because we see there's a penalty when we don't, nature has a way of teaching us one way or another. Violations of these natural laws produce sorrow in human beings. Positively seeing the fruit of a harmonious relationship with the Dharma or the natural laws that govern the universe. The fading become more and more as that deepens. It's really one process, but the contemplations kind of by gradation look at it. You come to the liberation or the cessation of the end. Seeing the endings of attachments, attachments to the khandas, seeing the kilesas weakened dramatically and finally eliminated, let go of. We come to the 16th and final contemplation. I'm breathing in and constantly contemplating letting go. I'm breathing out and constantly contemplating letting go. The yogi practices like this. The Buddha adds to end this section, the full awareness of breathing, if developed and practiced continuously, according to these instructions, will be rewarding and of great benefit. The 16th flows out of the 15th, the 13th through 16th, it's all the pure development of wisdom, panya. The 16th is more the contemplating the completed task. The letting go is of such a massive dimension now. The ease of letting go, the naturalness of it, the obvious value of it. So that the object is the freedom itself. Seeing the objects that have many, many times come through the mind, 
that have been grasped onto or pushed away and that have as a result caused suffering not repeating that pattern there's one ancient image that was used when you become the sun you don't have to grasp for candlelight so the letting go comes out of fulfillment There's no need to reach for lesser things when you have the greater. And so it's the contemplation of abandonment, of relinquishment. And in this particular lineage, the archetype is the arhant, who's finished with all attachment. It's a totally purified heart. Greed, hatred, confusion have been washed away. And all the things that we've hoarded, all the things that we've been clinging to, which have caused us so much suffering, they're all given back to nature. We've misappropriated them, we've stolen them in a sense, from their true owner, which is nature itself. And now we return it all. There's no more illusion of anything being I or mine. Anything whatsoever. No aspect of mind, no aspect of body. It's a total comfort with everything as a natural, undivided process. We are nature. There's no more illusion of possession. or lose their potency, they're overcome. It's the end of suffering, which was the goal of the path of your call right from the beginning. And the goal of the holy life has been accomplished. in our in varying ways to varying degrees can experience some of this this giving things back to nature seeing that we don't own our body. No one owns the breath except conventionally speaking and legally speaking. We see how thoughts and feelings come and go on their own. Moods, the state of health of the body We see it as an impersonal process, 
empty of self, rolling on. We see thoughts claiming to be owner. We see thoughts claiming to possess this or that. But we see them as thoughts. struggle between this tiny entity that we have created is over, the struggle with nature. We stop fighting the world and actually can be of more use to the world. And so this final Sixteenth contemplation can also just slightly be pointed to or hinted at as laying the burden down. This very, very heavy burden that we've been carrying all along almost uninterruptedly. The burden of I and mine, laying claim to most everything, as either being us or belonging to us. And the sixteen contemplations, which as you know can take place over years, accompanied by greater and greater sensitivity to the breathing, either studying the breathing directly for purposes of calming, for purposes of developing and promoting insight, or as a kind of soothing support that we use as a companion that we turn to as a companion as we investigate various aspects of mind and body. Just hearing some of these teachings, though perhaps beyond your own experience right now, can give you a glimpse of the vastness and the majesty of the journey. It starts off so simply, just by knowing that we're breathing. acknowledging and becoming more sensitive and familiar with such an ordinary and taken-for-granted process. Beginning to notice other qualities of the breath. When we first began, as you recall, the length 
long and short in-breaths and out-breaths. More and more the breath becoming conscious, more and more the field of awareness expanding, becoming stable. And throughout, with the breath as a vehicle, developing the depth of mindfulness and insight that we need to free ourselves from that which we need freeing from. Whatever it is that limits us, And so the attainment of nirvana, the various degrees of exposure, opening to freedom that are possible for human beings, alive ones like us. In this particular approach, this is considered the highest purpose and goal of a human life. You may not be interested in it, Right now, your concerns may be with something else. And of course, that's up to you. But the message of the Anapanasati teaching begins with something as ordinary as breathing. and ends in the total transcendence of everything, including breathing. And perhaps each one of you has already had a taste of that in very small humble moments in practice sometimes perhaps only for a few seconds when the burden has been put down and as a living in joy in the moment a coolness free of any kind of grasping, any kind of aversion, and some degree of clarity, perhaps more than we've known. A taste here and a taste there. An easing up of something we're holding tightly to. an untying of a knot here or there, all moving in the direction of full disentanglement, 
full cleansing of the heart. Because according to this teaching, our troubles begin and end in the heart, in our own heart. We go right to the source of the greatest human suffering and the greatest human wonders. Right here. our last meeting and any odds and ends that we can talk over That's um, Does everyone follow what's being said? So the question, the underlying question is, is that is okay? It seems to me to be in this feeling. Yeah, I would say if that's how, yes, it can be, but let, let me go um, a little bit more doctrine, not too much. To study Anapanasati, you're also studying Satipatthana. If you're going to practice Vipassana, you have to know a few of these words. Satipatthana is the, uh, that particular teaching of the Buddha is what, where most of our practices come from, perhaps all of them in Vipassana. And it has to do with the development, the arousing of what are called the four foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of the mind, and of sometimes called mind objects or phenomena or dhammas or dharmas. And that's what we're doing. In Anapanasati, if you notice, we have, we've gone through 16 separate contemplations. But they were called four tetrads. The first four had to do with the body. The second four had to do with feelings. The third four had to do with the mind. And the, the last four had to do with what are called dhammas. And that's exactly the way the Satipatthana Sutra is lined up. And so all we're doing is we're using the breath to develop the four foundations of mindfulness. I am going to get to what you're... that you use the breath just as just what you said and that you're just for example let's say you want to uh, to practice contemplation 13 on impermanence you if you're using this the sutta as a guideline you're always using the breath no matter what you're doing 
goes without saying. Does everyone know that by now? It doesn't matter. What, one way or another, you're with the breathing. You're always in touch with the breathing. That's the simplicity and the power of it. It's also it's hard, unless you finally decide that this is really what I want to do. Okay, so one way to practice would be, and this is what I meant by you start orchestrating and working out your own way of practicing, is while breathing in and breathing out, you contemplate impermanence. Okay, and that one is, that I've encouraged you to do. Right? Is everyone clear about that? Now, you can do it by taking a specific contemplation. Let's say you decide that I'm just going to take the length of the breath. So while breathing in and breathing out, using that as an anchor, you watch, uh, you also watch the breath. In this case, it's the same, that it's not really an anchor because you're using the breath as well. It's, it's both the anchor and it's the object. Uh, you're seeing the breath become more deep, perhaps more fine. And then perhaps you have some kind of a troubled thought and suddenly it becomes uh, more shallow and agitated. Now, if you if you see, it all depends what your practice agenda is. If you've set for yourself the studying of impermanence, and you've taken just that one, the first con- first two contemplations on length of breathing, if that's what you've set for yourself as your practice, then and you're studying impermanence, then anything having to do with the length of the breath is an occasion for understanding impermanence. The length of the breath is really secondary. That's what's used to help you see change, if you've set that for yourself. Or it might be uh, piti, joy, or sukha, a very peace. Let's say you get to that and you find that the mind is filled with lots of, of peace. Now, if your contemplation is impermanence, remember the first time around, we've been talking about when we get to that, what we, want, we just want to develop peace. Sukha comes out of rapture, which comes out of samadhi, which is the first four. Is everyone following me? I'm, if, if you're not, tell me, because I... Okay. So the first time around, we're developing things so that we can have them to contemplate in the first place. You can't contemplate uh, sukha if you don't have it. You can't contemplate rapture if you don't have it. So you have to generate it. You generate it through uh, a concentrated mind through a samadhi. So let's say something like uh, extreme peace arises in the mind. As you know, that can be something we study in and of itself. But if you've set for yourself studying impermanence and you want to use impermanence on the peace, so you can see impermanence anywhere. So let's say you have a lot of sukha in the mind, but now you observe the sukha, but mainly from the point of view of seeing change in it. It becomes very happy, very peaceful. Oh, even more peaceful. Then suddenly it becomes less peaceful. It may then become uh, agitated. But now what you're studying, basically you're in the second contemplation, the contemplation of feeling, Vedana. Now in studying feeling, if you've set for yourself impermanence in that particular meditation, the, the feelings are interesting insofar as they're the field from which we can learn about impermanence. We see that uh, sukha doesn't last. It becomes more intense or less intense or it becomes uh, agitation after a while. Do you see what I'm getting at? Okay, now that's up to you. That can be something that you decide on because you're drawn to it. It can be something that you work out in uh, collaboration with a teacher because they feel this would be good for you right now. 
Okay. So that anything I'm saying can apply to any of the contemplations. If you're drawn to a particular contemplation, you can use it in its own right. You can also use it to develop impermanence, an understanding of impermanence. And then out of impermanence can come uh, an understanding of anatta or no-self. That is, when you study, let's say you study the same sukha, actually any of them. Let's say it was long and you were just studying the length of the breath. You can decide to study the length of the breath from the point of view of anatta. That is to, I hear all this talk about there's no self. What the? And then let's say you've gotten a fair amount of doctrine and there's some degree of intellectual understanding. You say, okay, I'm going to see if I can understand that and I'll use length of breath because if what the Buddha is saying is true, that there's no ownership of anything, there's no solid core to which anything's happening, including length of breath, then you can learn that anywhere too. In any of the 16 contemplations, even such a preliminary one as length of breath. Okay, so now let's say you're watching the length of the breath, and it gets longer and it gets shorter, and you know, it goes through all those oscillations. It may start off as impermanence, that one I've talked about a lot, but you can also study it from the point of view of anatta, and there, as you watch the breath change, you can begin to see that there is no, there's no breather. There's no one that, uh, to, who owns the length of the breath. The breaths just change. They become long and short based on causes and conditions. The mind gets sad, the breath will become shorter. If you're very tired physically, the breath will, come, will become more shallow. Suddenly you become very inspired, you have a vision of the Buddha, you want to go to Burma, Thailand to meditate, the breath gets very deep and full, you're happy. You know, the mind can affect the breath, the body can... You start to see everything is interrelated. But let's say you've just taken, you've set this for yourself, length of breath, and you want to study anatta, because you're ready for it. You know, you, you wouldn't do it if you're not ready for it. It won't interest you, and you won't fully even know what you're looking for. So let's say the person is ready for it you begin to see that the breath keeps changing, but there's no one who's doing the changing. A thought may come up and say, with the thought might say, oh, my breath is so nice and long and deep and full and fine right now. Okay. And if you uh, grasp onto it, it creates the sense that there is somebody who is breathing long or short. But the job of wisdom, of discernment, of panya, is to be able to take a look at that and to see that's just thoughts. There's something in the mind. That's another thing that comes to the mind. And the thought says, uh, this is my breath. It's long now. It's short now. And so you start to, to be able to separate out. You start to see this is the length of the breath. This is something in the mind that claims it. But when you really look at it, all there is is the breath is getting longer and shorter and shorter and longer and shorter. And the mind may be making up what it, the, the ownership of it but you start to see through that. So you can learn the most profound truth on the most preliminary exercise. Remember, length of breath was when we, that was what we began with. Basically, to kind of, it's an easy one to familiarize ourselves with, with breathing and a bit of discernment and also seeing that the breath is a powerful conditioner of the body. I'm just reviewing what we've covered. Okay, now let's say someone like you comes along. Okay, and you say, well, I don't want to do any of those specific contemplations. Uh, let's say in an interview, I might say, well, any one of them really something you want to work on? No, they were all nice, nothing in particular. I, I was interested in all of them. But 
let's say you say what you just told me. But you know, in my last sitting, what I really felt drawn to is that as I was following the breath, just whatever was most vivid, that's what I went to. And of course, each one of them corresponds to one of the contemplations. It has to be either in the body, or its feelings, or it's the mind, or it's dharma. It's got to be one of those four, because we've defined it that way. So then, your practice might be beautiful practice. Breathing in, that's what I do a lot of. Breathing in and breathing out, and whatever comes up, you're with it. Now, if you want it to be vipassana, then whatever comes up is seen from the point of view of, let's say, impermanence. But you don't have any particular field. It's the whole field. So that whatever is more vivid, that's what you see. And sometimes it's the mind, sometimes it's the, uh, the body, and so forth. There's virtue setting a specific contemplation sometimes by delimiting the field and saying, I'm just going to concentrate on long and short breath. By delimiting it, sometimes you can be much more steady and concentrated. Actually, to do what you're suggesting in a sustained way, it's probably best for the samadhi to be pretty steady and predictable. Okay, let's let's use this to sh- this whole notion of how we can orchestrate that all. Say, it's like playing a musical instrument. Let's say you start off with some samadhi work. Did you something to? What did you do? the whole body breathing, okay, and the mind became a bit more calm, yeah. okay, and then this is what happened naturally? Then more um, movement into feeling, difference of feeling, and then I found, since there was a lot of thinking that it coming in at a certain point, that it was useful to change to that kind of Exactly. So you, that is definitely, a, that's a very beautiful practice, and let's say you now... Well, if you see, if you don't have uh, adequate samadhi, you'll just get lost in all that stuff. You'll just be uh, daydreaming and drifting, you know, being pulled around by it, not really observing it. So let's say you do what you're suggesting. In fact, that becomes what you do for the remainder of the sitting. And right after that, maybe your knee starts to hurt. And so then it's the contemplation of the body while breathing in and breathing out. And then there's a suddenly you become very sad. You contemplate time out. (laughs) You contemplate the sadness while breathing in and breathing out. And then suddenly you find that you're going out of focus. You know, you're getting, that's what happened? Yes, that's what I did. Okay, so then in this musical, this keyboard we're playing, you fine-tune the instrument. Now you come back to what's best it might be to come right up into the nostrils and, or just the whole body breathing, if that's what's working for you, to get the mind focused again so that it's fit to investigate. Yeah, so that you can have, it's like anything else, like, you know, in fencing or, or martial arts or uh, classical dance. The first part is, can be a lot of drudgery, you know, drill, where you learn basic moves over and over and over and over again until finally it's so internalized, or the Hatha Yoga Asanas, uh, that you can then, then you become what is called spontaneous. And we see great people at what they do, and they're incredibly spontaneous. What we forget sometimes is the years of very hard work that they put in so that they could just play. We just want to do the play part. Okay, now, you know, with the right attitude, it's all, it's all, 
enjoyable, even though it may be hard. But this is the sense of the sutra. That's why it becomes very individualized. If you read Thich Nhat Hanh, and now I would suggest you do read if you're still interested in this, Thich Nhat Hanh's book on, on the uh, contemplation of the breath is excellent. And it's very good to read that in conjunction with um, Buddha Dasa, Ajahn Buddha Dasa's Mindfulness with Breathing. They both, there's overlap and they both are somewhat different. Both read together, I think, would give you a very nice picture of the sutta. And if some of it will review what we've already done and some will go into areas that we haven't had time to cover. Yeah, they're both under Theravadan Buddhism. Sure. That's right. Well, let me again go back to our when we covered that and some exercise. That's all right. I'll, I'll review it. Um. <laughs> it's light. It's okay. It's light. Um, there are different interpretations. I'm going to give you the one that to me makes the most sense. Although it's not that others are wrong. You know, there are alternative views and they're also useful. What that one may be saying is um, it's just as the Buddha puts it. It's like he meant what he said. It's really quite self-evident. It says, being aware of the whole body, the yogi breathes in. Being aware of the whole body, the yogi breathes out. It sounds pretty straightforward. Some of the commentators have done with that something that goes to me quite far away from that. Okay. So now what that means is you're aware of, the, of you're sensitive to the whole body. That isn't a pinpointed kind of attention because it's too comprehensive. So you're aware of the whole body. It's a kind of a mode of attention that takes in, you know, a, a larger space, a larger form, while breathing in and breathing out. And so you're, uh, while being sensitive to the whole body, you're experiencing the breath wherever you experience it. Now, there's a concern for the, for the breath. And if you remember, we did exercises. I, I'm, I don't know if you were there or not. First, we went down to the abdomen, and we felt it going this way, and then we felt the breath on the sides, and then we felt the breath in the back. We went into the pelvis. We went into the chest, and everyone feels it here, or most do. Then we start to feel it on the sides, and we felt it in the back, into the throat, into the nose, and kind of like Humpty Dumpty, you know, we, we took pieces of the breath. And then what you can do, and you know, you're welcome to do this from time to time, then you try to be aware of the whole breath, just sort of like the whole thing's happening. And the exercise in, opens that up, but if you just keep practicing, your awareness will open it up. You'll start to feel much more sensitive to the breathing. So now what you're doing is uh, sensitive to the whole body, you experience the in-breath. We're not locating it anywhere. Just wherever you feel the in-breath. Sensitive to the whole body, you experience the out-breath. That particular one is probably what Suzuki Roshi is teaching in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. If some of you like that book, so reread it, see if it doesn't sound like that's what he's teaching. 
And so that can become a, a wisdom practice as well, as you sort of integrate samadhi and vipassana by calming the mind while being very alert and seeing change and everything happening. Um, but that is that adequate? One final doctrinal piece. Some of this may not interest you, but maybe sometime in the future it will. Not only is the Anapanasata of the final steps are developed if you do these 16 steps, because they are, they are concerned with the body, feelings, etc. Now, if you do that, what comes out of that are what is called uh, the seven factors of awakening, or sometimes you'll hear it called the seven factors of enlightenment. Now, these, in a sense, are when perfected. They're the... Um, when those come together, the, the possibility of deep wisdom is right there. And you're also developing those. And I'll, I'll just skip through this a little. Moreover, if they are developed and continuously practiced, the four foundations of mindfulness, which is what we're practicing, using the breath to do that, will lead to perfect abiding in the seven factors of awakening. How is this so? This is the Buddha speaking. When the yogi, listen carefully to this, even if you don't know the, all the technical meanings of this, get a feeling for what, what's being said here. Because, in a sense, these are the energies that come together and produce enlightenment. Or they, they bring you to the point where there are different views on it. One view is it helps you open the window, and then whether the breeze comes in or not. When the yogi can maintain without distraction the practice of observing the body in the body, the feelings in the feelings, the mind in the mind, and the objects of mind in the objects of mind, that's the four satipatthanas, now, when they repeat them, feelings in the feelings, etc., that means that you focus right in on it. You don't stray. You're told if you're contemplating feelings, you go, there's, first of all, there's no separation. Is uh, a union of the knowing and what you're contemplating, body, feelings, whatever. But also, you're not straying into any other, other contemplation, like the body. If you're with the feelings, you really penetrate into feelings. When the yogi can maintain without distraction the practice of observing the body in the body, feelings in the feelings, the mind in the mind, and the objects of mind in the objects of the mind, persevering, fully awake, clearly understanding his state, gone beyond all attachment and aversion to this life, with unwavering, steadfast, imperturbable meditative stability, you will attain the first factor of awakening, namely full attention. That's, this, in a sense, the perfection of mindfulness. When this factor is developed, it will come to perfection. And then the similar uh, presentation regarding investigation, energy, rapture, peace, and finally concentration and equanimity. So those, those factors, we're developing them, well, if you, even if you've never heard of this, you're developing those factors, and they have to be fully developed and coordinated, and that also comes from the full development of the 16 contemplations. It's really, in a sense, another way of talking about the same thing. Okay. 
What? Not really. Not really. Although I think it is something I wanted to talk about. Um, I'd rather wait and make sure that whatever's on your mind. Let's take up plenty to do next. If unless that someone has anything on you, if you have anything on your mind, I'd rather hear that. Nothing. Okay. Let me uh, uh, draw you out then. There's plenty to do. That could be one way to enter. Um, not only you have had that thought, but even in Asia, uh, at Buddha Das's monastery, very often people say, "Oh, it's too much to do all those sixteen contemplations." Maybe it is. You know, except for those people who are, let's say, full-time devoted to this. Uh, so, so what you can do, of course, you, you don't have to do all 16. But really, is there so much to do? We're really doing what we've been... Before we did this sutra, we took all these little refinements. Why aren't we developing samadhi? And then the samadhi was used to investigate. So there's really just two things to do. Calm the mind and then use it to learn. Nothing has changed. It just, it's a, a very rich and intricate way of, of doing that. But let, for the moment, let's say, boy, that's 16 contemplations. And each one of them, there's a lot that can be said, more than I've said. Honestly and truly, there are all kinds of... And especially if your practice uh, starts to really dip into them, and you'll have a lot of questions about, in your experientially based questions, about each one of them. So there is a lot to do in one sense. Uh, my question has to do with this. Uh, we started out with 35 people, and apparently the casualty rate is very high. We've left a lot of bloody bodies all over the place. Anyway, they're not here. Now, some of the people who are not here, there are four or five who uh, have actually had an extraordinary time of it. A couple, about three, that I know of for sure, this has become their practice, and they're they're just working with the 16 contemplations, and that's all they want to do. Probably everyone in this room, or most everyone in this room, has gotten some benefit from this. Uh, but clearly, there's been a heavy casualty rate. I would say the heaviest in any class I've ever taught. Now, um, I want to explore it. Not, don't worry about my feelings. I've been teaching long enough. You know, after a while, that part falls away. You, Otherwise, you'd stop teaching. In other words, your feelings get hurt so much that at a certain point, you either develop some kind of either rationalization or, okay, you just plunge ahead or you quit teaching. Um, I knew that the attrition would be very high. That I told a number of people that. That was obvious to me, and I had some guesses as to why. Some of them we already have discussed. For example, uh, in a way, too many things. You know, like, we could only spend a few weeks on most contemplations and you're just starting to get familiar and then we have to move on. It's really just, um, you know, an introduction to it. It's not, in order to do it, you need, now that's the second difficulty, which I anticipated, but I think it was more than I anticipated, is that because our meetings are broken up, we meet for two, two hours and then a week goes by and then we meet for two hours, and you all have very rich lives. You, you have, everyone has to miss one or two or three classes here and there. And so the continuity is rough. Or you have a week where you have a lot to do in, 
in your work life or family life or school or you know you have a deadline and so there are all these different things that make it difficult uh, since the the whole sense of the sutta is it's a systematic building up of momentum and uh, unless there's an adequate level of samadhi you can't taste a lot of these steps so that so you're just hearing it's academic you're hearing somebody speak academically about things that you're not tasting it sounds interesting um, so that to s- some of that suggests that it isn't it may not be advisable to teach something like this then as what I'm saying has nothing to do with the merit of the sutta which I have no doubt about the sutta is very beautiful it isn't the only way it's a way and it's a very good way uh, but is there something you can tell me although I probably need to talk to people who are not here more than all of you but some of it has to do with my own teaching ways in which I could improve some of it may have to do with that this kind of uh, intense going through a classical teaching is maybe people's interest in Buddhism is not developed enough yet to hold your interest for this because you don't need to know as much as I've been giving you to really um, make a lot of good use and, and come to happiness in meditation um, and some of it may be things I'm totally unaware of that, because next year I'm thinking of either teaching this again or probably just teaching the Satipatthana Sutra the two really go together and I've thought of alternating you off and on and even if a lot of people are not interested in it that really isn't my standard for something I feel it's necessary to begin to introduce the classical teachings if a few people are ready for it great and if a lot of people aren't that's all right but anything that you have to say to help me understand what we've done yeah mm-hmm. ways to improve it or just whatever um, I just started to get very nervous that you wouldn't continue doing this as you were talking so Do, doing fear. what doing uh-huh. what doing what I, I thought that the, the form of the class mm. was just fine I had an initial panic of I can't do this unless I go to a monastery you know, I really want to work at this and I had this incredibly busy, multifaceted yeah, exactly. life. And then after I got calmed down around that, which took a couple of weeks of steadily working at it, one of the effects that I've noticed is that the practicing is happening more and more in my daily life. The, the quality and, and development of mindfulness has just been enormous as a result of the class. I think what happened, and I haven't really thought about this consciously, is that once I realized um, I can't go to a monastery for 20 weeks, it's just not an option, I kind of made my life the monastery. And I really haven't thought of that until this very moment. But now, that's what I'm experiencing. Um, and, And there are little things of that, like the breath is in the car instead of the radio. And, and mm. just the breath is in the car instead of the radio? Yeah, That's and, good. And just yeah. many, many things like that. And so, so that's, that's my plea, that this has been just right for me. And also for me, it was a very big commitment to come here because of distance and all these other things. And when I made that commitment, um, I knew that I was at a point in my own practice where what you've been presenting is very important for me to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and now as I think about it, as you start to ask the question around the form and structure and what happened to other people, it seems a little bit analogous to the yoga classes I've been teaching for 13 years now in my community. And every class 
There are people who come and go. We start out with 25 people, and by the time we get to the end, there are about there's a core group of five to ten who are left. And then of that core group, all of a sudden now there are five or six who've been at it four or five years who keep coming back, and now we're saying, please, can't we have a more advanced core? I understand. And so I think, you know, for some people it catches and they understand, and then some of those people who came six or seven years ago are coming back and saying, you know, that really affected me, but it hasn't impacted fully till now. Now I want more. So it just seems to me there are always going to be people at different places. And for me personally, I assume for the other people who are still here, having this available at this depth is very, very important. Well, uh, if I do it next time, uh, it's going to be another obstacle. It's going to be three hours. That'll eliminate a fair number of people. It's going to be from seven to ten. So we well that way, well that way we can have uh, a more two full sittings and a real full walking, and also time to discuss. And, and a lot of people won't have the time or the inclination, and that's fine. Uh, yes, you don't have to go to a monastery. Uh, I've done both. In other words, I've worked with this sutra exclusively. I told you I was just alone for two months with it. And what you can do with it is quite amazing because you're alone and is uninterrupted. All you're doing is just, just you know, you just do it. Uh, and, of course, now I'm not. And you can definitely, once you get the sense of it, and I hope tonight a little bit more of that is coming through, then you can keep developing it. Uh, you know, different contemplations are more relevant at certain times. You begin to know which and you develop it. If you get strong samadhi, in general, we need that anyway. No matter what form of vipassana you're talking about, you can't get to any of the real fruit unless the mind gets very calm. It's just not going to happen. So, as that start, if that happens, let's say, however you get there, samadhi starts becoming a much more normal thing for you. That is, when you sit down, most of the time you can get very, very concentrated. Well, then this, the rest of the sutra then becomes totally accessible. So, it, you know, it's a bumpier ride. I mean, you're picking up in pieces, and, and it would be helpful if we could go away. And that's another thought of, you know, ideally this should be taught for about a month-long retreat. Uh, for Let's say all of us go away for a month-long of highly motivated people. Or individuals just taking it and going off and working with it. It's an experiment. It's the first time I've ever taught it and, I, and under these conditions. And so... If I were to do it again, I think I could do a little bit better job. But some of it, some of the limits may, may be, you know, there's nothing I can do about it as long as we don't have that continuity. Was it... The structure and form is just right, and it takes effort. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of effort, uh, and that's why they're unlocked. Yeah. Um, but you see, I don't want to teach things that if no one's interested, I don't need to teach it. Then again, I feel I've got to, in some ways, you have to generate the, you know, I have to do, if there, this is enough, even though fewer is enough. So, so, in other words, it's okay, is what you're saying. It's natural. I think it's more than okay. I think it's excellent. And I want to make a pitch for the spill-out effect. I mean, I'm sitting here, but the number of people I see every week in my work, you know, maybe I'm talking about 40 people, every single one of those people has been affected by my doing this. Um, what has changed in my work is extremely profound. I mean, my whole concept of, of how I work and so forth, and I don't need to go into the details, but we may be the people sitting here, but I bet what I'm saying about what my kids call the trickle effect is true in some way for every person in this room and each person they touch every day, every week. Okay, Ferris is my old pal. I want some criticism. <laughs>
Before you get a criticism, I just want to emphasize something. Well, I, I need both. I'd like to hear both, yeah. And that is that I think that we really need, some, some people really need courses at this level. I mean, yeah, that's why I get There are plenty of courses that are at a more, uh, uh, a less precise yeah. level. It's the precision and the, the, that I've really appreciated. And I feel, I feel the same way that uh, even though I haven't had the hours to spend on the cushion, I feel as if in my ordinary life, this is really, uh, that, that's, where, that's where I get glimpses. That's where I get, that's where I see impermanence. I mean, that's, I mean it's really affected my everyday life greatly. Mm -hmm. um, okay, another thing. You said you've never seen such attrition in a class. Have you ever taught a 20-week class, though? I mean, part of it is simply it was a long class, and it's hard for people to arrange their schedule so that they're really here for 20 I weeks. I taught at the university. The classes were what? What are, what are they? What are they? 20? What? 16. They're 16 weeks? Oh, so this is even longer than a university class? Mm -hmm. Longer than a semester. I see, yeah. I think just practically, you know, that practically speaking, it's really hard to get a bunch of people to, to stay around that long. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, this is a different kind of comment. I, I don't think it's a criticism at yeah. all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like the format of the class. I just want to say that the place where I felt that it got away from me, I was not practicing long enough. My my period of the period of time that I was willing or able to assign each day to sitting meditation did not allow me to feel to experience um, piti or sukha, except at the very just just very occasionally. And it was at that point when we began working with feeling and um, phenomena and... I understand. That I felt as if, yes, what I'm hearing now are seeds that are planted for the future. And I, I appreciate them at that level. And I occasionally got little glimpses, you know, so it really helped. But I'm not fooling myself into thinking that I was really experiencing what the power of this sutta could have let me experience had I been on a month or three months retreat. So that is certainly a disadvantage, but it's an insurmountable uh, disadvantage as long as the student isn't willing to, you know, to to uh, put in lots of hours. But it's certainly not wasted. I mean, it still affected me greatly, and I think it's important to have this. Mm -hmm. That's Frank's point too about effort. Yeah. No, that's yes. You might try. <coughs> You have a 16-week course of three hours, and you can punctuate that with a, a day-long retreat every four weeks. Mm. Very good, That's Frank. That's a really good idea. Yep. Very good. But don't make it a condition of being in class. <laughs> <laughs> How come, Macau? Because I work on the Oh. <laughs> what about I and mine? <laughs> I understand. No, okay, in principle, though, that is a good idea. Once, well, how did you put that again? Once a month, like, or? Well, if you had a 16-week course, if you're breaking it up into quarters, four one-day retreats. Where we do this. Yeah. Well, 
Yeah. Of course, how many people, if, uh, but I, I, I see your point. So you not make a requirement. Yeah. Of course, now there are individuals that exactly that is happening. For example, I led a a ten-day retreat at IMS, and there were four people who they're not here tonight, uh, who are doing this very thoroughly. And so they use the whole ten days to they just they saw a lot of what this is about. So I didn't teach on a pun on the retreat, but with them and there personally, I could. But Have I, you thought of IMS? I could if I want to. Um, You mean for the nine days? Yeah. I'm wondering though about the broad base of people who normally right. come for a yeah. year like that. Yeah. Um, it might not be the right thing for most people, whereas it seems like it's the right thing for the people that are now. I really agree. I think it would be hard. Usually there's a large number of people coming to those retreats and they just might not. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. Yeah. yeah. I'm very concerned because my last yoga class for the summer was Come on Wednesday night. Are you free Wednesday nights? We'll talk about practice every as often as I can, either I or Orion. Yeah, starting next Wednesday night. It, after the hour sitting, I'll come as many as I can. If not myself and Orion, we'll just talk about practice. I'll put something up on the bulletin board. I sh- Has the walking and breathing meditation that has been very helpful? Um, very. I think I talked to you about the yoga too. You know, it's been after 20 years of yoga experience because all of a sudden everything just clicks with breathing, the movement. That's great. Any other ways we could improve yoga? Sure. You don't have to tell me. Right. said it. I think it's true. I originally did it so we would, remember we contemplated the Buddha image while breathing in and breathing out and I, I wanted to put so much focus on the, the that form and so I turned everything down but then it just kept going on. It was a mistake. Yeah. And if we're thinking about a relatively small group, especially, but maybe even if it's not a small group, do you, do you think having a circle or having being able 
and being able to see each other as we discuss, not necessarily when we're sitting, it doesn't matter when we're sitting, but when we're discussing, it really might uh, encourage people to talk and encourage um, the support of one another if we could see each other when, yes. when the discussion was going on. Yeah. Um, just even encouraging people to turn around, as I have not, <laughs> you know, so that we can see each other. Yeah, at this size, I agree. It probably be a different form is more appropriate. That's true. Andrew, we've been sailing along for many years. <laughs> what do you got to say for yourself? Anything? What do you mean, cut the overall? Instead of having it be 20 weeks or even 15 weeks, have it be, I don't know, instead of 20 weeks, have it be 14 weeks or something between 12 and 16, I think that it might, I think it would have a broader appeal. I don't know if it would be as useful for some people. Just so much ground to cover. There's more in that sutta than this one. But uh, I hear what you're saying. You may be right. I'll have to give it some thought. Yeah, I think you probably are right. That uh, fits a lot of people's experience. Even in Thailand, Buddha Dasa, uh, you used to teach it on 10-day retreats. Uh, but it was the same problem. That is, it, just because it's 10 days, people may not have really developed adequate samadhi. And so the, the Dharma talks every night are getting way ahead of where people are. Now, some of that's not bad, because that happens in any retreat at Barry. A lot of the talks may not be where you are, but they're... In, they're they're inspiring, or they can give you energy. It's not fatal. But my question is that for, for, let's say, the past five or six, I don't know when, how many weeks, has it come across as too academic because your experience is not, it hasn't been, you know... I wouldn't say academic. It's been, for, for me, it's been more intellectual or more in my head rather than more grounded in my own 
I still find that very valuable when other people said similar things. Um, it's as though, I mean, working with something in this way, there's such, an, such a precision as we progress over the weeks um, that no matter what my practice is going to be in the future, I feel like this will help. It's like if you, if, uh, if you want to learn how to change the oil and change the tires in your car, and so you take a complete course in auto mechanics, when you go to change your oil and change the tires in your car, you're going to be much better prepared to do that, uh, and you'll be more confident. Uh, all, the, all the different ways of looking at the breath yeah, I, I, that happened to me. You, you may find that even a few years from now, some of this will become very helpful to you, even if it's not now. Um, well, I, I think you dealt with this, but maybe it needs to be more an organic part of the course, a way to help with the despair. The despair? Okay, now that we've moved through all 16, you know that you can just play with it as you see fit. You know, and just uh, some of it can give you a sense of, of moving through it, but you can just take any particular contemplation that you're drawn to and work with it. It doesn't matter, really. Um, Buddha Dasa found in Thailand, because he's pretty explicit about he's been teaching, doing this for over 50 years, this is, um, that for most Thais it's too much too. It's too much. And so uh, he teaches a, the short method, what he calls the short method, which is two steps. It's perfect for America. Except it's, <laughs> except it's not really any shortcut. I mean, if you, what it is, is you develop strong samadhi, and then with the samadhi you investigate impermanence. So, you know, we've been, okay, the truth is we've been doing all this stuff you know, it's just that this is a very, very sophisticated and it's systematic and one thing leads into the next. It's a training. Uh, you don't have to do all 16. You can, if you can get strong samadhi, yes, just go right to impermanence and it can free you. Then again, this rounds you out. Now, according to everything that we know, this is what the Buddha used to get enlightened with, Anapanasati, this particular sutta. And he also continued to use it after his enlightenment particularly the samadhi part. I mean, he would just live in joy. You know, when he wasn't teaching, he would just... Well, he would go on retreats even after enlightenment. I think I quoted one evening. 
something from one of his rains retreats where he was in seclusion just doing this for three months. Uh, yes? I think, in, in contrast to what uh, some of what's been said before here, it's possible that part of the power of this class for me has been the fact that it was 20 weeks long. I mean, it really takes a long time to build that momentum that can be lost, it's true. But if you do keep up the momentum, <coughs> Boy, that 20 weeks is really uh, different from just a mere 10 weeks or 12 weeks. So I appreciate the fact that it was 20 weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that for some reason I was able to you know, keep it up. Even though we have many more people who are uh, missing in action. Okay, and what are some of the other Vietnam? Um, just a sense from you, if. Uh, if a year from now, that would be next February, not now, I mean, it would start again. I could start, do this again. This is the kind of thing that really you can go over and over and over. Or I can do the Satipatthana Sutta. What is your preference? Just taking a sample. Should we do this again? How many people would like me to just start all over and do it again? Just start right from the beginning. And I know I could improve in certain ways, but you would. Anyone else? Or, remember, it's a choice. Or take the Satipatthana Sutra, which is this in more detail. It's different, but it's the same. I like the idea of alternating Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah? I think I come, I have no question, I come to regards to what you do, but I prefer the different things. Yeah. Okay. I think they would complement each other. They do. Really. <clears throat> Am I right that the Satipatthana is not a, uh, like a, a practicum the way this is? No. It doesn't have, you know, first you do this no. practice and then it's much more... It's easier. Yeah, I think it'll be easier to teach. So, it's, yeah, I think so too, and I think it will also be uh, I mean, this factor of um, uh, despair that one is falling behind. I think it's called ambition, it. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, one year you yeah. can give us despair, and then the yeah. next year you can, you know, not. Okay. <laughs> A practice group, not the, not the sutta. You, and I'm making the practice, some of the practice groups longer. I'm making them three hours. And the sandwich retreat will be in the fall? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Sandwich? Two weekends and five evenings. Sandwich between the weekends? Yeah. It's a bologna sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly because, anyway. I was self-deprecating. I was about to say it, so I... Yeah. What? Tofu. <laughs> Tofu burger. Uh, anything else on anyone's mind about this? It's a pain, yeah. it's a pain huh? How do you think I feel about it? Yeah. <laughs> we noticed. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like I felt like you were, you were at the rhythm of the pain, and I just had to go with that. But I can get over that. I mean, it's valuable. <coughs> Some of this is being taped and written up. It's being edited and revised. That's why we're doing it. Otherwise, I wouldn't. And it has quite a ways to go, in my opinion. Sure. The best way, see, traditionally the way it's taught is, it's individual. You work with a teacher, and the, and the teacher gets you started, 
and you go on a retreat or you learn it and you know what to do. Like, for example, you all have a pretty good idea. When I did it, the fir- I did, I've done it a few times, but the first time I did it, the second time even more so, I spent the first few days studying it to, ref- you know, to understand what had to be done. Then I just start doing it. Now and then I check back if I needed to, check my experience with what uh, some of the, the teachings say. But the, ideally, it would be an un, uninterrupted, where let's say you have your own meditation hut, um, and the amount of time, the longer the better, you know, so that it's fluid. You're building from a day-to-day basis. You get to certain samadhi, and then that gets stronger the next day and the next day. Whereas here, you get something, and then it falls away to some degree, because you have to go out and drive and so forth. So the length would be a help, sure. But the continuity, I feel, is very, very important. And we just don't have that. And so we have to do what we can do. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be taught. I'm not, I, that never occurred to me. Just I, either and maybe not this form. For example, if any of you are really love this particular way, come to interviews. You know, I am working with some people, and that's what we talk about. You know, they're moving through the 16, and in, in one or two cases, it's couple of years old now. In other words, they're working at it at their own pace, and one person's working on 13. We've, the last five months, that's all we've been doing is working with 13. But they, we've been working together for a few years, moving up to that. So that's another way. But someday you may have some more retreat time, and you may want to just take uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's little book in with you. It's enough. Or the translation that I worked out here and. Uh, you'll see it's, it's very different when you can just keep doing it all the time with nothing in, in, in the way. Now, the other benefit I think you'll find is probably your relationship to your breath will never be the same. <laughs> no matter what your take on this was, you know, just hearing breath, 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 that probably your overall ability to be with the breath is, is, has been enhanced. I hope. Uh, so now, if you if you want, read uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's little book. We've not had any reading. I've strongly suggested you not read, and I think you know why. And that could be enough, or read uh, Buddha Dasa's book, or read them both together. Uh, actually, Thich Nhat Hanh makes a suggestion that Anapanasati and the Satipatthana Sutra be integrated, because they both have... Satipatthana is not systematic. It's just a bunch of different realms of... Con- you could... There is a way of looking at it that it's somewhat like that, but it's not, not as tight as this. But it goes into detail about, about developing mindfulness that is much more than, sati- than Anapana. And it's more than, the, than just the breath. It has to do with the contemplation of death and a lot of things. It's, it's the core of Vipassana practice. It's like a yogic manual. I would say probably every practice that anyone's doing in any school of Vipassana comes out of that sutra. Karana, can you think of any teaching that in some way or another doesn't owe itself to Satipatthana Sutta? I mean, I thought about, I couldn't think of anything. Goenka, it's all comes out of there. Yes. That's why it's called, in one book, called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. It's the heart. It's very simple. It's just being aware of your mind and body in the present moment, continuously. I have a 
some presents for the survivors. Some of you already have this book, and I apologize. I don't have too many resources in terms of presents. I mean, you know, presents, but they're not. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.